program. But we start today with something that we talked about last week as well. And City Council in Vancouver has shared some plans, announced plans to introduce about 50 kilometres of slow streets. And that's restricting these roads to local traffic only, uh, using more roadways for patios. They say they are still hopeful that they will be able to provide businesses clear guidelines to expedite license applications by June 1st. And they're also taking a look at a motion that would again repurpose some road space and that would give more people room to move around, to support local businesses, to connect with others while still being able to physically distance. So what would something like this look like? Let's bring in Sandy James, a city planning consultant, managing director with Walk Metro Vancouver. Sandy, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Okay, thank you. Uh, what are your thoughts? And I know this uh, information was just to been has just been released by the city of Vancouver, but it's something that they've been looking at. Uh, what's your response to this idea of making these slow streets and more space for pedestrians, cyclists, uh, people not in vehicles? Well, you know, Jill, one of the most important things is how we're going to support our local economy. Um, and I'm sure many people, and I am, um, I'm, I really want to get out and support my local businesses. But what's really important for me is also to have um, correct physical distancing. And that's where the city is, is, is doing the right thing. Their number one thing is to support physical distancing. They want to improve um, our consumer access to businesses. They want to also help people feel safe and be able to get out and exercise. And they want to create that space for travel and exercise. And so that's why they're releasing what they're calling a series of slow streets. And those streets are still open to car traffic, but they're hoping that there'll only be local traffic. They're asking people on the signage to say to just to drive slowly and to watch for people walking or biking on the road. And have other jurisdictions done this? I know there's been talk of Seattle closing a lot of streets to pedestrians and cyclists, but have other jurisdictions done this kind of slow street to project? Well, some of them call them filtered streets, and that's what they're called in London, England. Um, Calgary has gone ahead and done complete street closures on the weekend that go across the bridges and give people um, in higher density areas a chance to walk and recreate or to get to shops and services. And Winnipeg has actually already gone ahead. Um, They have streets that they close in the summer, but they went ahead and closed those already. Um, And those are particularly just similarly to ours where they're for pedestrian and cycling during the day and they allow traffic at night but ours are only our ours are signed just with the big plastic uh, jersey barrier in the middle of the street so you could still drive around it but they're encouraging just local traffic and they're calling them slow streets. I've, I've heard people questioning that as well. And, and I know they've done the pilot project in Kitts Point, which seems pretty obvious that the local traffic only is at the edge of Kitts Point. So you, you know what they're talking about. They're talking about people yes. that live in that specific little peninsula. Right. But there have been questions in other places when they say local traffic only. I've heard people rebut that saying, well, I'm a resident of Vancouver. Doesn't that make me local? Do I have to live on the street to be considered local traffic? And, and that's, that's always a good question. Of course, every citizen of Vancouver has the right to every street. I think what we're looking at now is how to make it easy for people to walk um, with kids in a baby buggy or if you're in a wheelchair or if you're biking with your children and just feel safer. Um, we know this is a, a very unusual time. These are just temporary measures um, for the glorious summers we have. Um, and so it's only in temporarily 
There's going to be an evaluation of it starting in July and a further evaluation in the fall just to see how effective these are. And these are mainly side streets. They are not along major streets that um, people would be using. And even if you were to access it, we're just asking that people go a bit slower to go 30 kilometers an hour versus 50. And just to be aware that there are people walking and cycling on the street with their families. And do you think that something like this, does it need more enforcement or or is there the chance that people then that are walking or cycling could almost have a, a false sense of security and that you're making the leap of faith that the drivers will be going 30? Well, you know, that's a really good question. And if you see the barriers, they're actually these big white jersey barriers that are probably going. Um, they're a couple of meters across and a, and a meter high. And it's very clear they're, they're set in the middle of the street. And so if you go along north of Kingsway, along Lakewood or on Wall Street, the barriers are kind of like an A-frame construction barrier with signage. So it's quite indicating where um, those streets are slowing. And they're also beside other streets that people can drive on. So I think the intent is not to restrict drivers because we we know that people still need to drive and some uh, mandatorily have to do it. But just just to be aware that because of physical distancing, and trying to keep two meters apart, that there may be family groups walking and cycling on those streets as well. You mentioned, too, with people that might have mobility issues or might have trouble with mobility. Are there concerns then with expanding onto sidewalks or plazas or parklets, as they're called, that that in some cases it might actually make it more difficult for some people to get around? Absolutely. And that's something that needs to be factored in on every piece of work that's done. Paul Storer is the leader of this type of work at the city. He's the manager of um, the Slow Streets, and he will be specifically looking at that. And the the number one thing is for universal accessibility, and that means that everybody has the ability to, to use these spaces and these streets, and that's always top of mind. All right. It's very interesting, and we'll see how things unfold and how things play out. Do you think the city needs to be doing more as far as encouraging this or making it easier for for not just people to walk around and to have that physical space, but also, say, trucks unloading for businesses and making sure that as businesses reopen, they're able to do that? Yes, and the city actually has um, been thinking about that. They are seeing priority three ways that we need to have room to queue to line up and feel comfortable doing that. Businesses that are loading still need to have that ability to load, and they also need access. So everyone still needs to um, be able to figure out how to move safely and conveniently. So everyone needs to have that access to business, and I think the city is is working at providing those specific loading areas. But we also need to make sure that people feel comfortable getting out and using the local businesses and feel comfortable being able to queue or line up with the correct distancing. All right. We will leave it there. Sandy, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Take care, Jill. 12.35 on this Monday afternoon. Well, as you likely have seen, or perhaps you are a worker who's back in the office, businesses are starting to reopen, starting to see more signs in the windows. And whether it's a retail store, a uh, another kind of store, a bookstore, well, that would be a retail store, wouldn't it be? A restaurant, a cafe, a bar, things are opening up. But what are your rights if you as an employee, for whatever reason, maybe it's a medical reason, maybe you live with somebody who's immunocompromised, What are your rights if you tell your employer you don't feel comfortable coming back right now? Let's check in with Leah Moody, a partner at Sanfiro Tamarkin LLP. Leah, thank you so much for being with us today. 
Thank you, Joe. Uh, what do what can workers say if if your employer says f- that the the office where you work they've have new protocols in place they've been given the go ahead by the health authority and they want employees back at work what are your rights if you are somebody who feels unsafe doing that? Well, I mean, the first thing that I'm going to say is that from the outset you have the right to refuse unsafe work. Any employee in this province can say, you know what, I think that this situation is unsafe for X, Y, and Z reasons, and I'm going to refuse that work that I think is unsafe. But, you know, as a preliminary step, I would think that if you're an employee coming back to work and you want to know what sort of protocols your uh, company, your employer has put in place in order to, uh, to meet the government guidelines for safety in the workplace, ask. Every company in BC has the obligation to come up with a COVID plan for reopening. And um, as an employee, you should ask to see that. That is your right. And I would imagine, I mean, employers in that scenario, realistically, you would think they have that plan. They, like you said, they legally have to have that plan and, and should, I would imagine, even proactively should be showing it to employees. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great point. That's certainly what I'm recommending to all of my uh, employer clients is that, you know, one of the ways in which you can sort of nip all of this in the bud, any sort of complaints with respect to workplace refusals, is to just keep the lines of communication open, right? I mean, people are scared for good reason, I think. Um, You know, we've just spent the last two months being scared into staying home and not seeing anybody. So, you know, I think that it goes a long way to have your employer reach out and say, this is what we're doing to keep you safe. You know, very similar to what uh, companies are doing to uh, assure their customers that it's going to be safe to continue to shop there, to patronize their place. Do the same thing for your employees. Treat your employees the same. Give that same courtesy to your employees, I would say. And what about places whereas where we don't really have masks uh, that are mandatory, say, on uh, transit uh, in stores? In a lot of places, though, they are requi- uh, requested. They're recommended to be worn. What if an employee uh, feels that it's unsafe, even if the employee is wearing one, feels it's unsafe dealing with the public not wearing masks? Yeah, so in that case, if, if physical distancing is impossible, then I think the employee has a right to ask that their employer um, provide them with various forms of PPE. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's really only going to be a situation where um, physical distancing is impossible, right? And that's, that's really the only situation right now that uh, our you know, public health officials have recommended that masks be worn. Um, but if you are an employee that just feels like a mask would just keep you safer, even though you can keep your distance, even though there is plexiglass between you and anybody else that you might be in- engaging with, um, that is technically your responsibility, but you should absolutely be permitted to wear one uh, if, that's your, if that's your wish. And if you if you're somebody who has been working at home through this and if you can make a case that your productivity was the same, you were able to do your job from home, uh, but you're still being told you need to come back to the office. Can you could you fight that saying, well, wait a minute, I've been doing this for weeks now. Why can't I continue working at home? Yeah, what I'll say to that is that you can't legally fight that. There's no legal leg or basis to stand on to require that your employer allow you to continue to work from home. But, you know, everything is negotiable. And I do think that everybody, employers and employees alike, are just trying to muddle their way through this together. So if you are an employee and you feel like you're better working from home, you know, you don't, you're maybe you're afraid to take transit uh, or you have ongoing childcare obligations, you know, have start that conversation with your employer. I think that even if you don't necessarily have a legal basis, 
to work from home, um, many employers might be amenable to coming up with some sort of arrangement now. And what if you're an employee, say you're a retail employee, and like you said, the employer has the protocol in place, they have what they're doing to keep people safe. What if as an employee, you notice that the public's not adhering to the rules, whether it's the one-way aisles, stickers on the ground, or, or, or touching things? What if you notice, if you see that even with the protocols in place, you see people not following the rules, what are your rights as an employee at that, in that scenario? So a lot of this, I think, is probably going to be figured out as we go, right? It's still very much getting rolled out um, as as it's being rolled out. But uh, I think that if you're an employee and you see somebody who is not abiding by the rules that you that your company has put in place to keep people safe, you should be, I believe, permitted to refuse service or to ask that customer to abide by those protocols or policies or to leave. And I don't think that that should be something that you are disciplined for. I think that should be something that your employers are encouraging um, because really, I mean, staving off a second wave and making sure that the return to work is safe is everybody's responsibility. And so if an employee is, you know, at aisle 27 and they're the only ones on eyes of a customer that isn't abiding by safety protocol, that employee should feel empowered to, to say something and to refuse service if they don't comply. Does an employer have any right to ask what an employee is doing in their spare time or in their time outside of work to ensure that employees aren't putting people at risk? Generally, no. So an employer is only going to really have purview over what happens in the workplace. Um, You know, that being said, if somebody is coming to work with any sort of symptoms um, or, uh, you know, an employer can certainly ask about I, don't, I mean, I don't think anybody's traveling right now, but an employer can ask about international travel um, for the purposes of then asking that individual to stay home. Um, I, I would certainly encourage employers to send out, um, you know, bulletins or policies with respect to um, general good hygiene practices. Um, but, you know, you can't sit an employee down to say, you know, how many times did you wash your hands when you went home last night kind of thing. Um, it's, it's really just something that can be encouraged. Uh, and, uh, and I think that that's the extent of it by, by law. Well, we know the tourism industry has been very much impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. People not really flying all that much, still a little bit, but not nearly what it would have been like this time last year people in their provinces being told, why not consider a staycation this year? And that's even leading to questions about how far from home it's okay to travel. Well, let's bring in Lisa Baer, the Minister of Tourism, Arts and Culture, as this is actually the start of Tourism Week as well. Minister, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill, for the invite. Really happy to be here. Well, I think people are excited. Well, we know from what happened with the website (laughs) for camping that people are excited to get out and enjoy the great outdoors. Not a great start, though, for people trying to book those staycations and get out and enjoy B.C., well, it did take them a little longer than usual, that's for sure. Uh, but it was a record number of reservations booked uh, today. And so that's a lot of really excited British Columbians getting ready, um, you know, to explore our province and, and travel in their own backyards. This is fantastic news. What do you see happening then with more people uh, staying close to home and spending their money? Uh, I would imagine people aren't going to be spending as much money as they have in the past. Uh, you put out a release uh, with looking at, is it what, six point? $7 billion that British Columbians would generally spend on international travel. What would be a realistic goal on how much money you would like British Columbians to invest back in B.C.? 
Well, you know, this is a great opportunity for all British Columbians to support their local businesses. And we're already seeing that happen, of course, you know, uh, the choosing to shop on Main Street and and to, um, you know, ordering food from their local restaurants and made in BC products. And so the same goes for tourism. This is an excellent opportunity uh, to explore what's in our own backyards. You know, uh, um, there's a number of British Columbians who may not have been whale watching yet or, uh, you know, gone to go see a grizzly bear and go on a grizzly tour or, uh, you know, go kayaking in one of our, our gorgeous rivers. There's, there's so many opportunities uh, for British Columbians to, to uh, support local businesses here in BC and, and to, to really celebrate and explore what, what we have in our backyards. I think one of the draws for people for the camping and for getting on that website wanting to go camping is that you take your own tent, you take your own supplies for the most part, and it seems like a pretty safe thing to do, particularly right now. Do you think it's going to be difficult to encourage people to get back into staying at hotels? Well, there's absolutely going to have to be confidence uh, built into the sector and, and into our communities uh, as we slowly open up. And, and that's what Premier Horgan has done with our, our phased approach in, in really making sure that we're taking slow, uh, careful, thoughtful steps guided by our provincial health officer in opening up a way that makes sense. British Columbians have been absolutely amazing in following Dr. Henry's uh, orders and guidance, uh, you know, under uh, along with Minister Dix. And we've done such a great job of, job of flattening the curve here in BC. And so uh, we know British Columbians take this seriously, and we know that they'll take it seriously moving forward as we open up as well. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that uh, that confidence is built in and that um, the British Columbians are being sensitive to uh, what communities need and what British uh, businesses need as we move forward. Do you anticipate as we head into the summer, there'll be more encouragement for people to ride or to take BC ferries? Well, they, these are all things that are being worked on and looked up at uh, uh, worked on as we go through this phased approach. Um, of course, we want to make sure that uh, communities are ready to welcome their visitors. Um, you know, as we saw with the camping piece this morning, uh, we are encouraging people, of course, to to stay as close as possible to home and to continue following those health orders. But if you are uh, traveling further away, um, to make sure that you're, you know, you're being sensitive to communities, that you're bringing in your own supplies and that you're, you're taking all the necessary precautions and following all the social distancing and health orders that are out there. And so British Columbians have uh, demonstrated that they do take this very seriously and I think we'll be able to see those pieces open up as we move forward. Uh, what do you say to communities that are still telling people, please don't come here, we don't have the health care, we don't want the virus here and uh, to where a community might be somewhere that like the Sunshine Coast or, or the shoe swap places that have traditionally been very popular. Uh, what do you say to, to communities that are telling people still at this point, please don't come here? Well, of course, we have to respect community wishes uh, as we go forward and, and as we do start to, you know, spread our wings and, and explore further out into the province. We want to make sure that uh, uh, we're respecting communities' wishes, but at the same time, we're, we're going to be following the provincial health orders. And so as those guidelines emerge, as our phased approach 
you know, as we do open up into phase three um, and we get, uh, you know, that that health nod to move uh, a little further, then uh, communities will be more confident and more comfortable uh, as we go. So I think we'll see the conversation start changing as we see how phase two goes and as we see, um, you know, that British Columbians uh, are going to continue to take this very seriously and are going to continue to follow the health orders. I think communities will be become more confident moving forward. Right. But there's no health order to not go into these communities. It's requested no. and people are yeah. being told to, to be mindful, but there's no order keeping people from traveling anywhere in the country. No, um, that's correct. And that's why we're encouraging people to stay uh, as close as possible to home. And and by a large part, British Columbians are doing that, which has been fantastic. Um, Are you helping out then as far as destinations, um, people getting back into hotels that have been shuttered? Because we've been hearing about a lot of businesses or possibly hotels that simply that are saying they won't reopen. Well, we've got, uh, you know, the hotel's uh, plan in uh, with the the health officer, and that's being reviewed. A number of hotels are opening in the next couple weeks. Um, These are pieces that uh, we're going to be working on, you know, for the months ahead. Recovery is is going to be a very uh, um, difficult journey for for businesses, and we're going to be working alongside with them. But, you know, we're going to continue to focus on on, um, marketing BC to British Columbians, like you said, you know, we, we spent as British Columbians $6.7 billion on international travel, uh, you know, in 20, 2018. That's a great opportunity to, to reinvest those funds here in British Columbia and support our tourism sector, support our hotels, support our small businesses moving forward. And I, I think people understand and get why the border with the U.S., at least the land border, has closed. What, big, uh, what kind of a hit are you anticipating, given if we don't have any U.S. tourists this summer? Well, I think that's a, a little early to, to tell because uh, we don't exactly know what the summer is going to um, hold for us so far. You know, as we move into phase three and as we start opening up and seeing uh, what that looks like and, and our ability for British Columbians to actually explore their province. But of course, there's there's going to be an impact. But international travel was $6.9 billion in 2018. And our um, international spend overseas was 6.7. So if, if British Columbia continue to to demonstrate as they did this morning their extreme desire to to uh, travel and to explore I think we'll be in a good place here in BC to, to encourage people to explore local uh, to to really get a chance to get out in British Columbia all right minister we'll leave it there thanks so much for your time today thank you Jill happy to be here thank you 218 on this Monday afternoon. Well, you likely have heard about the spike in alcohol sales in BC. Not only in BC, it seems to be happening in other provinces as well. Are we really drinking a lot more than we did pre-pandemic? Well, the numbers show about a 21.5 increase in the wholesale sales of alcohol sold in BC. Uh, Again, up about 20% from about $500 million to about $605 million. And those are numbers that were released from the BC Liquor Distribution Board. Let's bring in Carrie Jang, UBC psychiatry professor. You likely recognize the name as he used to be a Vancouver City Councillor as well. Carrie Jane, great to have you on the program. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, any surprise that we're purchasing more alcohol? No, it's not surprised at all. We'd seen this throughout Europe as well as in Asia. And uh, even driving by the liquor store near my house, the lineups were unbelievable. And the amounts people were buying were unbelievable. 
<laughs> well, when this all first ha- started, I was in a liquor store and the, the guy in there actually said, you better get what you can now. We don't know what's going to happen to the supply. So I, I fall into that category. I purchased way more that day than I normally would have. Is it is it possible, though, that we're simply replacing where we used to be going out to restaurants and to pubs? We're replacing that with having a few drinks at home instead? Well, certainly that's a question that's being looked at now. The BCCDC uh, is actually surveying to find out, you know, how people's habits have changed. For example, are you drinking more sugary drinks? Are you drinking more alcohol? Are you actually replacing the alcohol you at home with what you used to drink at restaurants? I suspect, and certainly data we've seen from around the world, is that people are just drinking more at home. Uh, we're not sure it's new drinkers or just people who normally drink drinking more. And what concerns does that raise for you? Well, certainly the issues around alcoholism, uh, you know, developing an addiction uh, to to alcohol is a concern. It also leads into things like domestic family violence, you know, violence against the kids. Uh, And again, we saw some of this happening in China. We saw this happening around Europe as well. So these are the things that we're a little worried about. You know, once alcohol's in the system, as you know, all the things that usually stop us from doing stuff kind of get lost. And I I mean, I've seen more people drinking in parks on the beaches as well as people get out there. And as we've kind of opened things up a little bit more, uh, we mentioned that that Vancouver City Council, three of the motions coming to council were booze related. Uh, A lot of questions of that should be our priority. What would you say, though, because the argument was made that if we had shut the liquor stores down, that would have been more drastic and that would have caused a whole other host of problems. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think shutting it down, you know, sort of prohibition has never worked. Is you know, throughout our history, we've never seen it work, and so it's always been responsible use. And so, you know, not only do you allow usage, but you have to also educate the public what's appropriate and what's not. So, if you can open up more patio space, you know, again, respect the neighbors, serve it right. Again, becomes very important uh, as we reopen the province. So, these types of issues are things we have to look at, but it can't just be done, you know, all or none. It has to be. It has to come with a lot of education, and it has to come with re-education people as to what's appropriate. You know, I've been in the house for about 11 weeks now, and I don't remember, you know, what's good social manners or not anymore, it seems. According to my wife says that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When do you think it becomes a problem then? If somebody has perhaps increased the amount of alcohol they consume, uh, at what point we are going to be through this and and it will be behind us? Is that when you really have to reassess and think, okay, so that was my pandemic behavior, uh, but wait a minute now, perhaps I have a problem cutting back. Yeah, I think that's what's going to happen. I think people will either realize it themselves, but more generally, you know, if the patterns continue after the pandemic is over, family members, friends saying, wow, man, you know, you're drinking a bit too much or, you know, you're doing too much of this or that, uh, it, it will be a problem. And, and this is the thing about the pandemic. It's, it's, a, it's a brave new world out there. We've never seen human behavior shut down this way before. So, you know, as somebody who's in psychiatry and studies psychology, this is really fascinating for me to see how people's change. And and I suppose not a surprise, though, that people take comfort. Like you said, it's it's not it can it can lead to uh, uncomfortable situations. It can sadly, in some cases, lead to violence. But if, but the idea of a social drinker, it can provide a bit of comfort in in a time that's very stressful. Well, you know, that's what, uh, looking at some of the surveys actually done in Canada, and particularly Ontario, you know, people are drinking because of stress, you know, their lost work, you know, loss of income, you know, people are home, they've got all these kids running around going nuts, uh, and boredom. 
I mean, what's even more interesting for me in, in the sense that, you know, condom manufacturers are saying that their sales are down. So what are people doing at home? <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other survey, I think. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, do you think also the, the survey, do you think it will give us a, a clear picture or is it like, we, at least I've been told, that when you go to the doctor and the doctor asks you how much alcohol you consume, the doctor automatically doubles the number you give them because you're never honest about it? Well, you know, the survey is a little more clever than it. it didn't ask you, you know, are, you, are how much you're drinking? Because, you know, I always have one beer at dinner. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, it's, it's more like, are you drinking more than usual? Right. And so we're actually looking at the, the, the delta or the change in drinking behavior as best we can. I mean, this is as far as we can get right now on, on, on uh, these types of surveys, you know, self-report. But certainly it'll give us an indication as, as, to, as to whether or not people are actually sensing amongst themselves, within themselves, are we drinking more? Am I gaining more weight? Am I exercising more than usual? You know, I lie all the time when it comes to, uh, you know, how much I exercise I do. But I was very honest when it says, do you walk more because of the pandemic? The answer is yes. Uh, and so this is how we're trying to get around some of those types of uh, reporting errors. And, and I suppose the real numbers will be once restaurants and pubs and bars reopen, if the liquor sales are, stay at the pandemic levels, then, yeah, we're drinking more. I guess so. I think, you know, the, the thing we have coming up against us as well is that, you know, the possibility of a second wave or a, a continuation of pandemics. So are we going to see continued hoarding behavior? Are we going to see people continue to be stressed out? How many of these people will actually get their jobs back? Or how many people can actually go back to the office or, or, or resume normal life? You know, when the province and, you know, the health minister and Dr. Henry talk about, you know, the new normal, it really is going to be a new normal. And how people will cope and adapt will be a fascinating study for all of us. And most of all, I think the province has done a really good job in, in preparing us for that. They're saying it's going to be different. So, you know, if you thought the way the world was, was before March, think again. And I was just reading the Japan Times, for example, even the Japanese are adopting the way Tokyo and, and hostess bars and, and, and restaurants are all changing because of the new normal that they're expecting. All right. We'll leave it there. Carrie Jang, again, great to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.